Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. This is after they have um, gone through the flood. Uh, the, the, the ark is now settled down. They are now exit, have exited the ark. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. And then over to chapter 9, we'll read the most lengthy passage uh, from chapter 9. We'll read all the way down through verse 17, beginning of verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the altar, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I have given you all things, even as the green herb, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is the blood, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth and abundantly in the earth and multiply it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living thing that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus, I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said... This is the sign of the covenant which I made between me and you and every living creature that is uh, with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. May the Lord bless to our understanding this, the reading of His word. Sometimes you will go to, ladies, you will go to a baby shower. And during, you know, during the preliminaries to that baby shower, they will, they will announce the theme for the nursery. And from time to time, you'll hear that the, the theme for the nursery is Noah's Ark, right? which is a fun theme, right? Because there's all of these cute little pictures of, of, of Noah and a few giraffes and a couple hippos like hanging their head off the boat. And the boat looks about this big right? 
And, and you're like, Noah couldn't even fit in that by himself, let alone all of the creatures, right? And so sometimes we have a, a little bit of a, a caricatured concept of what, what was taking place with Noah and the ark. Of course, it is the thing that, that childhood imagination is filled with, but what we are examining here this morning is no fairy tale. It is no product of someone's imagination. It is something that took place in space and time. And in fact, when we think about the horrors of the judgment of God falling upon the earth, I mean, that's not the stuff that nurseries is made of. (laughs) But it is important for us as believers to see how God is working, even in the midst of his judgment of the earth, to accomplish his purposes. So as we're thinking about the covenants, of course, we read in this text of Scripture, God says at the outset that he will make a covenant with Noah, and then at the end of this frame, in chapter 9, he comes back and says, now I am making my covenant with you. So let's understand for a moment the context. The context is the universal flood that God sends to judge the earth. The context is a universal flood that God sends to judge the earth. Now, both of those, both parts of that statement are important. But you may ask, well, you say it's a universal flood. Pastor, what makes you so sure that this was a universal flood? Well, I'm glad you asked. The text is actually quite clear for us. If you're taking notes, I'm going to give you one, two, three, four, five, six reasons why I am confident based on Scripture that this was a universal flood. The first reason that we we know it was a universal flood from the text of Scripture was the purpose of the flood. God was judging not just man, not just a few men, not just mankind as a whole, but all of man's realm. So it was a universal flood because this was the very purpose that God set out in this judgment. Notice, please, chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 6, verse 7. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then down, same chapter, verse 13. And God said, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. What we are talking about here is actually a destruction of the earth. Now, the globe continued to exist. But what existed after the flood was so dramatically different than what, took, what, what was existing before the flood that, that it is actually referred to in the text of Scripture as a destruction of the earth as they knew it. And so the flood was universal because God was was pouring out His wrath not just on a few men, but on mankind as a whole, and yea, even the entire domain of man, the earth itself. Furthermore, we see a second reason that we know it was a universal flood was the depth of the flood. Notice in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 19. The waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. What we see is that the depth of the flood 
with such an extent that even the highest mountains were covered. This was not just water contained to one valley or or one portion of the earth or the lowest part of a continent, but that all of the mountains throughout the whole earth were covered with water. This is the only... This is the only way to describe this as a universal flood. If all of the mountains were covered. Furthermore, we see thirdly that the character of the flood helps us to understand that this was universal. The character of the flood, this was not a a calm, tranquil, minor event due to a lot of rain in a specific region. Notice with me, again, I'm in chapter 7 and verse 11. In the uh, 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the foundations of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were open, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Do you understand what is being described here? That the flood not only came from the sky, the water came not only down from the heavens, but that the, the fountains of the deep broke up. Basically, every geyser throughout the whole globe was erupting with water. So there was not only water coming down, there was water coming up from the depths. This was a cataclysmic event. It reached to such an extent that it actually disrupted the tectonic plates, as geologists tell us. The entire earth was ripped up with water. This was not a stream that overflowed its banks. It was not a a lake that was too high. This was not a large rain event in one area. The, The earth was erupting water from down below. We see, fourthly, that it was it was explained to be in terms of a global flood, not a regional one, because of the duration. So again, in, in, we look at, you look at chapter 7, verse 11, and then you go over to chapter 8, verse 14, and you do the math, what you find is that the, the waters lasted on the earth for 371 days. So over a year, it took these waters to recede. Now, if, if the waters were merely running off like you see in a localized flood, it would not take a year. But what's happening here is there's nowhere for the water to go. And the water can't run off to a dry region because the entire earth is covered with water. And so for for over a year, the waters prevailed upon the earth. But the text itself makes clear that this was a universal flood. So we see the repetition, uh, this is my fifth reason here, the repetition of universal themes. I'm in chapter 7 again, and I'm looking now at verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, the birds and the cattle and the beast and every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And in, in all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, 
all that was on the dry land died, so he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping things and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Does that sound like a localized flood? No, the, the, the text is clear. All flesh throughout the whole earth was destroyed. Furthermore, we see, and this is my, my last reason, before I give one more reason that kind of overarches all of these, um, is the, the sheer size of the ark. The size of the ark, again, I, I mentioned at the outset that that there was the, there's this, sometimes this notion in our mind of what the ark looked like, and, and we cannot even begin, I think, most of us to understand. Now, now, our friends in Kentucky have tried to help us with that, and if you've been to the ark encounter in Kentucky, maybe you have a little better idea than the rest of us actually what this ark looked like. But it was a massive building feat, and the reason it was built to be so large and so stable was because of the very nature of the flood itself. And so this comes from our friends uh, at Answers in Genesis. How long was the ark? It was approximately 510 feet long. It would take nearly one and a half football fields to equal the ark's length. Big enough that NASA could lay three space shuttles nose to tail on the ark's roof. How tall was the ark? The roof of Noah's Ark was more than 50 feet from the ground. That would be taller than a four-story building. And there was plenty of space for three extra-tall inner decks, as the Bible describes in the details. How much cargo space did it have? The Ark had the same storage capacity as about 450 standard semi-trailers. A standard livestock trailer holds about 250 sheep, so the ark had the capacity, the capacity to hold 120,000 sheep. That's a lot of sheep. And it is quite likely one of, if not the very biggest wooden ship ever built. There are a couple that that rival it. There was a Chinese ship in the 1400s that might have come near. Uh, there was also an ancient Greek ship that might uh, rival the size of the ark. Um, but with those possible exceptions, it was the largest wooden ship ever built. We see, we see that this was a universal flood because of several reasons we see in the text of Scripture itself. Now, we'll step away from that and give you really two more kind of logical reasons, but they are still based on Scripture why this was a universal flood. Both Peter, under inspiration, and Jesus himself in Luke 16 affirm this as a worldwide Judgment. So let me give you the reference if you want to look them up later. 2 Peter 3, 6 and Luke 17, 27. So Peter, under inspiration, and Christ himself affirm this as a, a universal, as a global judgment. 
You know, some might say, well, I, I believe in Jesus, I follow Jesus, but I don't believe all those fairy tales in the Old Testament. Do you realize that Jesus himself believed the Old Testament narratives as they were written? So the testimony of the New Testament affirms that this was a global judgment as well. And then the second reason, as kind of one of our list of reasons why this is a universal flood, is the promise of God. Now think about this for a moment. We read together that God promised what with the rainbow? He promised not to do this again, right? Not to do this very same thing, destroy the earth with water. If this was a local flood, if this was a regional flood, then that means, are you with me? God has violated his promise. Right? Because we have had large-scale floods since then. What God promises in this passage is to not ever do the same thing. That is, namely, destroy the earth with water. And so you say, you know, someone might be tempted to think, well, this is a minor detail. Pastor, you're making a big deal of, I mean, does it really matter whether it was a global flood or a local flood? Yes, it, it actually does matter because at the heart of the question is, does God keep his word? God promised not to destroy the earth with water again. And so the very promise of God is wrapped up in understanding that this was a global flood. If it was not a worldwide flood, then God lied. He broke his promise. If it was local, God has actually broken his promise many times. So, that's the context. We have a global flood, but furthermore, why a global flood? I mean, why did this, this flood come? Well, I said it a moment ago. The context is a global flood that God sent to judge the earth. And so, God sent this flood because of the wickedness of man. So, go back with me to chapter 6. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There was this, this constant pursuit of evil on the part of mankind. And so verse 6, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And so the context really is mankind's sin. His wickedness had grown so much that God says, I will destroy him. And then notice in verse 7 that God determines to destroy even his creation because of mankind's sin. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. God sent the judgment because of man's sin. Oh, but we stopped reading at the end of verse 7, didn't we? And actually, the most, one of the most beautiful gems shines in this passage in verse 8. But, I mean, that's, that's great. I mean, in the whole context... God is sending judgment, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
Oh, what a cause for rejoicing. Because you see, God, God not only, this, this covenant is not only in the context of judgment, but it is also in the context of God's grace, His mercy. Even in the very midst of judgment, God's mercy and His grace shines brightly. So that's the, the context for the covenant. Now let's look at the covenant itself. The covenant actually occurs after the destruction of the flood has passed. You see kind of this reciprocal effect here where Noah approaches the Lord and the Lord approaches Noah. We go over now to chapter 8. I know we're skipping around a lot, but I think it's important for us to take a moment just to see each of these verses. Chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar. Now this is actually the first appearance of an altar in the Bible. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal, of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings to the Lord. So at the outset, God had commanded him to take a larger number of the clean animals, and this is the purpose for which he he did that. So Noah builds an altar, and then in verse 21, we're told that it is a smell of satisfaction to the Lord. That is to say, God is, God is satisfied with his sacrifice. God receives his sacrifice. The, the punishable, those, those who deserve punishment, <clears throat> will not be punished. And in this context, God, Noah has sacrificed, he has, has approached God, and God now blesses Noah. That's the beginning of chapter 1. Or excuse me, chapter 9, verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and refill the earth. Now, you will see in this passage, if you look very carefully, that there's a bit of an echo. There are several parallels between this passage and Genesis 1. There's almost a, a reset as we echo, as God echoes what he said in Genesis 1 26 through 30. They are to multiply, they are given rulership, and then there's diet instructions given. Noah is blessed by God. He is told to be fruitful and multiplied. And then in verse 2, mankind's domination over the created realm is reaffirmed. And the fear, I'm in verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, and on all that move on the earth, and all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. So, so God is, is placing man in a very specific position in the created order. Mankind is the, the top, the pinnacle, the ruler of the created order. We see, first of all, in verse 2, that, that animals are in fear of man. They are in subjection to man. Right? An animal in the wild will run from you. And, and if they will attack you, it is usually out of fear. God has put within them a fear of mankind. Mankind is the dominant being in the created order. Furthermore, in verse 3, 
Man, uh, uh, animals are given to man as food. Verse 3. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herb. So just like you eat vegetables now, Noah, I am now giving you all of the created order. I'm giving you all of the animals as food for you. That is a gift of God for man to enjoy. And so in verse 4, Noah goes out and opens the first Outback Steakhouse. <laughs> Not exactly, but, but the idea is here, right, that man is is no longer just vegetarian. Man is given meat to eat. In verses 4 through 7, we see the sacredness of life is declared. And this really is the foundation for human government. Verse 4, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is the blood. Now, now, now God is transitioning. He's continuing to give diet instructions. In, in other words, you can eat meat. Oh, don't eat it raw, like it's got to be cooked. But then he transitions because the life of the flesh is in the blood, which is where he goes in verse 5. Surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man. Now we get to this, this very essence of life itself. And so if, if one's life is taken, if a, if a man's life is taken... The one who has taken that life will be held responsible, whether it's beast or man. It's further established in verses 5 and 6. In fact, so serious is God about the honor of, of, a, of the human life that he actually says that the ultimate price, the ultimate punishment should be levied against those who willfully take another life. Notice verse 5. Surely for the lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast. I will require it from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require it. Verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. This is the first instruction given concerning capital punishment. The notion that, that man's life is so precious that if one willfully takes the life of another, his own life has been forfeited. And notice he says in the text, by man shall his blood be shed. And this is where we see the very first instructions given what will, to, to what will grow into human government. And so it's actually, in this text, given to us for a couple reasons. The preciousness of man's life requires capital punishment. Now you say, well, capital punishment, that, that is the taking of a life. So how is that respecting life? How is that honoring life? Well, God actually says that the seriousness of taking another's life rises to the level that one has forfeited his own life when he murders another one, when he takes another one. Why is this? Is this just part of a specific instruction that is given for a specific time in human history? What is this reality predicated on? Notice the last part of verse 6. For 
The reason for this is because mankind is an image bearer. For in the image of man, or excuse me, for the, in the image of God, he made man. Man is to be a life giver, not a life taker, which is what he goes on to explain in verse 7. Be fruitful, multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply it. The sacredness of life is declared. The foundation for human government has been established. Man is to be a, a life giver, not a life taker. So we see something repeated that we saw at creation. Now, that was before the fall. So God gives further instruction. It's now amplified. It is expanded. It is applied. And that is in the form of man's dominance over creation. God's image is placed at the pinnacle of creation, the the pinnacle of the created order. And so you may wonder why it is that sometimes um, those who are um, professed to be pro-life are also in favor of the death penalty. The death penalty is actually a function of God's affirmation that man is to be a life giver. On the the contrary, you may wonder why it is that sometimes those who are most avidly pro-animal are okay with sometimes even vocally advocating for abortion, the very taking of a human's life. There's actually a connection, and we see the connection in this passage. In verses 1 through 7, God has declared man to be a special class in the created order. And those who rebel from that order don't recognize such a distinction. So that's the context, that's the beginning, that's the introduction to the covenant, and we see the covenant itself explained in verses 8 through 17. We read it at length before. Uh, We'll just take a moment to point out some highlights. It's initiated by God. It's established by God. God approaches Noah with this covenant. Now, we know that he has made a sacrifice. He has approached God. He has done what God has said to. In fact, he sets up the first altar that we see recorded in the scriptures, and now God says, I will bless you. But it doesn't stop with Noah. In fact, this really is a covenant with all of mankind. We see it a couple places here uh, in the text. Again, I'm back to uh, to chapter 6. In verse 18, when God is introducing the covenant, he says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark. But it doesn't stop with you, Noah. It's you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wife. All right, those are the ones that are to go into the covenant. But, but it extends now, chapter 9, verse 9, even further than that. As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Now, now who in here is a descendant of Noah? All of you should be raising your hands, right? I mean, all humanity was destroyed except Noah and his three sons and their wives. So all of us are not only descendants of Adam, but we are also descendants of 
Noah. Well, isn't it interesting that in recent years, those who study genealogy, those who study DNA, have discovered that we can all be traced back to one man. <gasps> Who'd have thought? So science is caught up, right, with what the scripture has told us all along. So we are, we are twice sons and daughters of one man, not only Adam, but then also secondarily Noah himself. And in fact, this, this uh, covenant extends now to all of creation because it says now the descendants after you and then verse 10 he goes on with every living creature that is with you the birds the cattle every beast etc all living things are really encompassed the whole creation is encompassed all right so that's the that's the covenant that God has given he has made a promise with all the earth to not destroy it by flood again there will never be another global flood. What is the sign of the covenant? You know it. What is it? The bow in the sky. We call it a rainbow, rainbow right? Now, was this the first occurrence of a rainbow? Well, you don't really know. Maybe it was. Maybe it was. It had already occurred, but now God links it to the promise and says, every time you see this, it would be a reoccurring token of my covenant with you. And so verses 12 through 17, he says, here's the sign that I will make with you with every living creature. Verse 13, I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth and the rainbow shall be seen that I will remember. So in verse 15, it actually indicates to us that, that the, the rainbow is a, a promise. It is a reminder even to God himself of the promises that he has made. It would encourage man. It would remind man of God's covenant promise. Now, this seems like a minor detail to us. All right. This, this okay, that's cool. Now we know where the rainbow came from. Maybe that's just a bit of human folklore that, uh, you know, where the rainbow came from. But it's really interesting that God gives a physical representation, a sign of the covenant that will occur again and again and again, and mankind will be reminded. Why is it so important that God gave the rainbow? Well, we have a hard time imagining ourselves in Noah's situation. But a little bit of help from science actually might shed some light. So this is a, an article that was published a few years ago by the Institute for Creation Research. Some of you are familiar with them. And, uh, and, and in this article, Dr. Morris explains some things that are, that are interesting, that are kind of shed light on the, the historical context. And so let me take a moment to read. Noah and his family had just come through an unimaginably frightful experience. They may have never seen a storm. They had certainly never seen one like this before. And undoubtedly, it left a firm impression on their minds. Now, again, we referred to this earlier, right? So, during the flood, the winds incessantly howled, the thunder continually pealed as the ark pitched and rolled in the waves. Earthquakes shook the planet without stop, sending pulsating tsunamis in every direction. Underwater volcanoes, and the, as the fountains of the deep broke up, and then heated water surrounding the ark, making life on board almost unbearable. 
As Noah and his family stepped off the ark, they entered a world totally unfamiliar to them. The geography had changed. Plant and animal life had been devastated. Weather patterns were chaotic. Gone was the pre-flood stability that they were accustomed to. Consider that the world was broken. To the extent that we enjoy relative stability now, they had none. And it would perhaps be several centuries for the earth to settle into the equilibrium which we now live in. The jet streams must still be established. The ocean currents must find their paths of the sea. The continents must halt their, their rapid horizontal movements and cease their vertical rebounding. In particular, the oceans must give up their excessive heat, which drove such violent storms. It was into this unstable world that Noah and his family was placed. Earthquakes were common. Wood was in short supply. Rainfall continue intensely. There were violent storms. Calculations show that the ocean's heat would take at least 600 years to di dissipate and that during this period, ice ages dominated on certain parts of the globe. Job lived soon after, soon after the flood and his book contains more references to ice and snow than the rest of the Bible put together. No doubt, they needed assurance that there would never again be a flood like the Great Flood. Because it must have seemed like they were still in it. This was out of God's grace and mercy that He instituted this beautiful reminder of His protection. And every time they saw a majestic rainbow, it would remind them of the security that they had in Him. And what a blessed thing it is to rest in His promises. That's what the rainbow means. That is the promise that God gave specifically and visibly. And so what lesson do we take from this passage of Scripture, from this covenant that God makes, not just with Noah, but with all mankind? Well, we first of all take the lesson that God takes sin seriously. God judges sin. He is a just God. He will not overlook our sin. He is long-suffering, and he put up with the sin of mankind, but at some point his long-suffering will run out, and judgment will reign. In fact, God destroyed, in large part, God destroyed his own creation because of the sinfulness of man. God takes sin seriously, and sin will be judged. But even in the midst of God's judgment, the second lesson that we see here is that God exercises mercy and grace. God exercises mercy and grace, even, even as He is a just God, which the, 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 the wedding of these two truths about God, both His judgment and His grace, remind us of the gospel, did they not? And isn't it interesting that when you move into the New Testament, the New Testament authors appeal back to the story of Noah as an illustration of the gospel itself. So several times in the New Testament we see uh, this referred to. We see it in, in 1 Peter, 
He says, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And do you understand what he's saying? Like God is, is holding back his own judgment. He's, he's withholding, he's waiting. Noah is preaching, saying, repent. Judgment will come while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. And then we see in Hebrews, by faith, Noah. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not seen, moved with godly fear, preparing an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Noah entered into the ark by faith. And in so doing, he and his family were protected from the divine judgment that fell. Oh, there are so many parallels to the gospel, are there not? We deserve punishment. You say, well, well, Noah didn't. Oh, yeah? Noah found what in the eyes of the Lord? Grace. And what is grace? It is undeserved, unmerited favor from God. God could have just as easily wiped out all of mankind and started over again. But instead, he chose to exercise his mercy, to extend grace to this Noah. And in so doing, preserved a remnant of mankind that he could make his promise with, his everlasting covenant with mankind himself. Every one of us this morning are deserving of God's judgment. There is no one who sits here this morning and can profess to be worthy of standing before God. You cannot, I cannot, we are all deserving of divine punishment. We deserve to be, to be the recipients of the wrath that God is, is going to pour out on mankind. But he's given us an ark. And that ark is Jesus Christ. One of Paul's favorite expressions about being, being born again, about, about being saved, is to be in Christ. And the judgment falls. But it falls on Christ if we enter into him by faith. The invitation is, is open. I don't know every, every heart here. I know many of you well, but I don't profess to see into hearts. The reality is that the invitation to, to fall on Christ, to, to come into Christ by faith, stands open. Every day that we live is a day of God's continued mercy and the invitation open to come to Christ in faith and repentance. If you've never done that, today the invitation stands open. For those who have, that have professed faith in Christ, we have, we have entered into God's grace. But remember, grace is not what we deserve. In fact, Grace, by its very definition, is what we do not deserve. And when we, when we think to ourselves, well, how smart I was to build a boat, we are totally misguided, right? 
God warned Noah. He said, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to build. And he followed the instructions. Noah submitted. He obeyed. He didn't lean on his own way, his own thinking, his own understanding, but he did what God said, him, said for him to do, and in so doing, he, he was saved with his family. This is a function of God's grace. And so this morning, every one of us should rejoice that this covenant that was made with Noah, the covenant that was made with mankind, also reflects the reality of the gospel. And so this morning, how does the gospel apply to you? How does this promise apply to you? May we this morning rest in the knowledge that Jesus Christ is our hope. He is our mercy. He is the grace that is provided to protect us from the wrath that we deserve. Father, we thank you for these moments that we've had together in your word. We pray now, Lord, that you would remind us of your grace, your mercy.